Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to another episode of Life Pedersen Makes a Podcast Podcast. I'm your host, Life Pedersen. In this episode, I'm going to continue reading excerpts from my book, Backpacking with Dracula, which I would normally be reading at a live in-person reading at a bookstore, but we aren't doing that this year because everything is aft, so I'm doing this instead. Today I'm going to read a variety of excerpts that give a picture of who Vlad Dracula was, uh, that being Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, 15th century Prince of Wallachia, who is the star of the book. Just a quick note before I begin, this is part of a series of episodes where I read from the book, so if you've stumbled upon this episode by accident, check the episode index so you can find the other episodes where I read from the book. Without further ado, let's get right into it. We'll get to the mind-bending mountain ranges, gothic castles, fortified towns, dusty peasant villages, striking moonlight, and cabaret of shape-shifting, face-chomping monsters with prominent overbites in due course. First, I need to begin by sharing the backstory of our headliner, Vlad III, Prince of Wallachia, also known as Vlad Dracula, also known as Vlad Tepish, also known as No God No to those who irritated him. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who couldn't identify the elusive vampire protagonist in the novel Dracula, but few people are more than vaguely aware that the Count was loosely based on a real-life person, Vlad Dracula, 15th century Vovoid of Wallachia. Vovoid means ruler uh, or warlord. He inherited the posthumous nickname Tepish, which means the Impaler, for his preferred method of drastically shortening the remainder of his enemies' lives with a sharpened piece of wood. When the character Marcellus Wallace uttered the exquisitely quotable phrase, I'ma get medieval on your ass, in the 1994 film Pulp Fiction, he was likely referring to Vlad's handiwork. History has rarely given us such a complex, paradoxical, and memorable figure, whose sometimes hazily documented life was defined by so much violence and death that an Irish novelist reinvented him as a toothy undead predator more than four centuries later. It goes without saying that the 15th century was a very different time, with morals that we consider shocking. Violence and the murder of whole families were legitimate ways to solve problems that would barely warrant a mourning in small claims court today. This was particularly true for someone with a tenuous grip on a royal title in a territory surrounded by powerful entities smacking their lips over the thought of doing a little bit of annexing. What we'd consider horrific war crimes were standard operating procedure for protecting one's land. Double goes for marching off to take someone else's. And amid one of humanity's most ethically deficient periods, Vlad III Dracula was deemed a psychopath. That is no mean feat. While Prince of Wallachia, Dracula's greatest enduring legacy revolved around his enthusiasm for justice via terror and employing inhumanely creative capital punishment methods, ranging from decapitation to boiling and burying alive. His posthumous moniker Tepish, the Impaler, was designated due to his favorite form of pre-death torture. A dull, greased wooden stake was judiciously driven through the victim's anus, emerging from the body just below the shoulder blades without piercing any vital organs, causing up to 48 hours of unimaginable agony before death. When short on time, Dracula would resort to more practical impaling methods through the chest, abdomen, and heart. Impaling was done in public. Targoviste's town squares had permanent stakes driven into the ground so that an impaling could be performed with minimal preparation. 
Dracula frequently attended these impalings, as one does, and when he was feeling extra theatrical, he would have the victim held in place above the tip of a stake, strap each of his or her legs to horses, and then have the beasts trot away in opposite directions. Even in an era when human life was unbelievably cheap, one in which witnessing death was a regular occurrence for most people, these gory, slow-motion spectacles must have been appalling. At times, the stakes and tree limbs surrounding Dracula's palace were teeming with impaled and hanging corpses, which people were strictly forbidden to take down. The stink of rotting bodies must have been overpowering at the height of summer. In all fairness to Vlad, this caliber of unchained violence and hideous punishments wasn't unusual in medieval Europe. Contemporaries in France and Italy made a habit of murdering political opponents and slaughtering their families for good measure. The Saxons and Brashov routinely staked convicted murderers, and, by comparison, impaling was really no worse than Roman crucifixions or the techniques used in the Spanish Inquisition. Though he's sometimes erroneously credited for having invented the practice of impaling enemies, Vlad may have first witnessed staking in Transylvania as a child, and he almost definitely saw other instances during his time in the Turkish court, which of course came back to haunt the Turks when he was terrorizing them in battle. That said, there's no denying Dracula took the practice to previously unimaginable scales of application. With his newly fortified stronghold in place in Targoviste, Vlad could finally get down to dishing out some long-overdue retribution. The sniveling boyars responsible for the horrible deaths of his father and brother already had stakes with their names on them. But Dracula was also intent on thinning the herd of boyars, those leading citizens and their families who had been working diligently for decades to destabilize the principality to their benefit and unseat a quick succession of princes who dared defy them. As an apparently plausible gesture of goodwill, Dracula invited the boyars and their families to an Easter feast in the princely court's new great hall. For stupefying reasons about which one can only speculate, the boyars accepted this invitation, arriving in mass, families in tow, suspecting nothing, and ready to get their drink on. One presumes Vlad stood up after dinner, delivered a sinister, butthole-constricting monologue on the topics of treachery and unconventional uses for human orifices, savored the moment for a theatrical effect as his guests started nervously inching towards the exits, and then had them lined up and impaled some 500 of them. Thus began Dracula's legend for elaborate, unforgiving cruelty. The moniker Sir Impaler was being anxiously whispered in senior Ottoman military circles, and some officials were so utterly freaked out over the idea of facing Dracula in battle that they talked of abandoning their posts and fleeing somewhere, anywhere, into Asia Minor, and why not buy that sailboat they've always dreamed of? An infuriated Sultan Mehmed abandoned the siege at Corinth, quickly wrapped up a few other campaigns in Asia, and then began amassing a shock and awe army that he would personally lead against Vlad. Though numbers vary wildly, depending on the source, prevailing logic suggests the Ottoman forces that headed for Wallachia in May 1462 totaled 60,000 highly skilled Ottoman troops, archers, warriors, and bodyguards, including their celebrated artillery force of 120 cannons, still swaggering from having blasted through Constantinople's legendary defenses. In contrast, it's estimated that Dracula had only about 30,000 bodies in his army. Dracula's forces included fierce fighters, an assortment of paid mercenaries from across Europe, and peasant troops so fiercely loyal that it's said that their steadfast silence, even under excruciating interrogation, gave appreciative pause to Mehmed himself.
though to say that Dracula had a legitimate force of 30,000 is a bit deceptive. His army also included all the women and children over the age of 12 that he could round up and arm with a weapon. In a bit of good luck, the Ottomans' advance was actually hindered by their prized cannons. Only slightly more portable than square boulders on the busted roads, thick forests, and goopy marshes of Bulgaria and Wallachia, their mighty artillery became crippling liabilities. Even in retreat, the Wallachians made life extravagantly miserable for the Ottomans. They ruthlessly poisoned water supplies, burned forests, herded farm animals that might be slaughtered for food up into the mountains, created marsh obstacles by diverting small rivers, and set booby traps like camouflage pits big enough to swallow an ox. The Wallachians got another break in that the summer of 1462 was the hottest on record. Thus the Ottomans stumbled along, baking in their armor for days at a time without the benefit of shelter, fresh water, or even shade for extended periods. In addition to this torment, Dracula's forces would periodically gallop out of unlikely side roads, kill everyone in sight, then retreat before the woozy, heat-stroking Ottomans could muster a serious counterattack. Ever imaginatively cruel, Dracula gathered those suffering from leprosy, tuberculosis, syphilis, and most effectively the bubonic plague, dressed them in Turkish outfits, and sent them to mingle with and infect the Turks. This tactic was said to be one of the earliest known implementations of germ warfare. This unrelenting torment and lack of food and water soon reduced Mehmed's forces to a shell of their former might. Mehmed, himself a noted master of psychological warfare and shockingly vicious, was beyond exasperation, bordering on traumatized by the scale and relentlessness of Dracula's brutality. The surviving Ottomans limped on to Targoviste. Sixty miles short of the city, whatever resolve they had left was squashed into oblivion by one final act of mind-bending horror. Dracula's men had erected a quote-unquote forest of 20,000 staked and gutted Turks collected from Vlad's previous raids, neatly arranged in an enormous fence-like semicircle. Some of the corpses had been there for months, exposed to the elements and pecking birds, and in the heat of summer, the stench of death must have been nauseating. Mehmed paused, presumably barfed in his mouth a little, and said something to the effect of, fuck this, before turning around and retreating to Constantinople. Even in retreat, Dracula's cloud of death followed Mehmed as the plague he'd seated in the Ottoman army spread out of control and took even more lives without a single arrow having been fired. I hope you've enjoyed this variety of excerpts from my book Backpacking with Dracula uh, that I picked specifically to sort of paint a picture about Vlad the Impaler Dracula without giving away the entire book. And if you'd like to buy the book, please, you can order it from Amazon or you can order it from a couple of independent bookshops here in the Twin Cities, one of them being Subtext in St. Paul and the other Moon Palace Books in Minneapolis. This has been the Life Pedersen Makes a Podcast podcast. Thank you for listening, and I apologize for the nasal congestion that uh, has been on and off throughout these recordings. Uh, I think I'm allergic to this microphone because every time I put it near my face, my nose seals up almost instantly. So uh, sorry about that. But if you uh, like what I'm doing or have any ideas uh, about what I could change or improve, please drop a note and I will keep on making these podcasts. Thank you.